Now, our theme this morning, uh, in a way, overlaps with last week's theme of proclaimed among the nations. And that's because the goal of uh, proclaiming Jesus among the nations is to see people believe. We want to see Jesus believed on in the world. Proclamation of the Gospel is the only way, ultimately, that people will come to believe. In uh, the book of Romans, in chapter 10, uh, Paul is wrestling, wrestling with his, his own personal sorrow and anguish that his own people, the Jews, had not believed. They had not embraced Jesus as their Messiah in a wholesale way. Thousands of Gentiles had been coming into the church through the Gospel. And it seems that there were plenty of Jews who had initially professed faith in Jesus but who were returning to Judaism, especially as the hostility between Jews and Christians increased and persecution uh, was, was growing and the pressure was to go back and be safe in the old, the old ways. The big questions that Paul uh, wrestles with in Romans 9 to 11 are uh, why is God allowing his own people to have hard hearts towards Jesus? And is there any hope for the Jews? Will any of them be saved and if so, how will they be saved? Well, his answer to the first question in a nutshell is the Jews have been hardened for a time while the Gentiles have been brought in to share in the covenant blessings. And his answer to the second question is yes, there is hope for the Jews because Just like the Gentiles, any Jew can be saved through the proclamation of the Gospel. So he says in 10 verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The Father in his good, wise sovereignty has determined that he will draw people to his Son through the spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel, through preaching. So Paul goes on, they have not all obeyed the gospel, not all the Jews have obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now see how it's not just faith That comes from the word of Christ. The hearing itself comes through the word of Christ. The biblical prophets were often told that they would be preaching to a people who have not, by their own volition, opened their hearts and were willing to hear. Quite the opposite. They were told to be prepared to speak to a people with hard hearts and with closed ears. 
Isaiah was told that his preaching would actually confirm people in their hardness in order to bring them under judgment, the judgment they deserved. And Jesus quoted Isaiah when he told his disciples the reason that he spoke in parables was to hide the secrets of the kingdom from those to whom they had not been given, those with hard hearts, but also to reveal them to those to whom they had been given. So the Father is the one who sovereignly enables people to hear and when he does, he does it by the work of the Spirit through the preaching of his word, the word of Christ. Now that might sound to you like putting, it's putting limits on God as if God cannot speak or cannot save in any other way. Well, if it's limiting God, then it's the limits that God himself has set because the the teaching of the Bible is clear on this. But I think we see it as a limitation because we normally think or prefer to think that human actions are somehow more powerful than God's actions. So we think... Uh, if faith only comes through the preaching of the gospel then that means that if we don't get off our backsides and preach the gospel then God's plan won't come to pass. There'll be people whom God wants to save but he can't because we haven't preached the gospel we haven't done our job properly. We think that this understanding of God only saving people through gospel proclamation is a problem because we think that human free will is able to trump trump God's sovereign will. We think that because we've been trained to think that God doesn't have the right or the power to sovereignly overrule human free will. The problem with all of those debates and reasoning is that it's just looking at it from the wrong perspective, from a horizontal human vantage point where we want to understand the mysteries of God's sovereign grace in election and predestination and calling. Instead, we need to look at it from another perspective, that of the incredible privilege that it is to be called by God and to be used by him in declaring the excellencies of Christ to the world. To be the key instruments that he uses to bring other people to faith in Jesus. See, telling another person about Jesus isn't just communication, it's not just education. It's being an ambassador of the kingdom of God. A role with great responsibility and with great honour. It's a role that the Father gives us because we are his children. The Bible talks about us being entrusted with the gospel. What a privilege. Knowing that people will only come to faith as they hear the proclaimed gospel should do at least two things for us. Firstly, it should save us from complacency. 
because we can't come up with any other theories about other ways or other means by which people will be saved if they haven't heard. Or some kind of system in which we conclude that those who haven't heard will will be okay in the end. There's an imperative to proclaim the gospel so that people may hear and believe and be saved. And we can't say, I'll just share the gospel by my actions without words because the gospel by definition is an announcement of good news. It requires words to communicate it. So we need to hear Paul's words. How can they hear without someone preaching? Secondly, knowing this should give us a confidence in sharing the gospel, knowing that it's not a hit and miss thing, that we just kind of throw it out there and it may work or it may not work. The word of Christ isn't just a set of ideas, it is the living, active word of God that has power to cut to the heart. When we share the gospel, we can be... 100% sure that the Holy Spirit is acting as that word is spoken. The word of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in that person who's hearing. And if it's the Father's timing, they will be brought to faith in Christ. It will happen because it's ultimately not dependent on their decision but on God who causes us to be born again. That doesn't mean every time we share the gospel someone will become a Christian because, uh, as I said earlier, sometimes the word that is proclaimed uh, actually brings judgement. It brings judgement on someone who rejects the gospel but it is still God at work as they hear the gospel. Last week, as we were looking at this theme of Jesus proclaimed among the nations, we, we saw people who in response to that proclamation, in response to encountering Jesus, believed in him. We learnt something about the nature of true faith. The centurion with the dying servant who recognised that he wasn't worthy to receive anything from Jesus but by faith He also recognised the authority of Jesus' word to heal his servant. The Gerasene man who knew what Jesus had done in setting him free from the demons and his faith then was expressed in his desire to follow Jesus but then also in his obedience to the command to go and tell all that God has done for you. And the Canaanite woman who recognised Jesus' identity as son of David. He was a a Gentile woman calling Jesus son of David, king of the Jews. And she saw by faith that God's grace was available, available even to her. Now, while those scenarios were all different, they all had one thing in common, their faith, was directed towards the person of Jesus. Sometimes in the New Testament uh, we see the words believe in Jesus 
In other places we see believe on Jesus. And I've heard people try to make a distinction between the two as if believe in Jesus is just an intellectual belief whereas believe on is a wholehearted surrender to him. Uh, In fact, the two phrases really are used interchangeably. Uh, They really mean the same thing. And in fact, um, that little word on in our verse this morning isn't actually there in the Greek. It says simply, believed in the world. That makes the focus even less on our actions of believing and more on the one in whom or on whom or the one whom we believe. The existence of believers in the world says more about Jesus than it does about us. It's the confirmation that he is indeed the Lord, that he indeed rules the nations with an iron scepter and he has the authority to command the obedience of all peoples. Remember its parallel statement in this confession, believed on in the world corresponds to vindicated by the Spirit. Just as Jesus was shown clearly to be Lord and Christ by the Spirit's work throughout his earthly ministry, so the Spirit continues to make his Lordship known and to bring a steady flow of people into the kingdom, people who declare Jesus is Lord by the power of the Spirit. Which brings us to the, the passage that we, uh, we had read earlier uh, on the day of Pentecost. This crowd on the day of Pentecost, for them faith meant three key things. And the, theologians have called these the three key components of a genuine saving faith. Knowledge, assent and trust. Each of those things in and of themselves aren't faith, although we may be tempted to reduce them to one or two of them, but all three together constitute true faith. In order to have a true gospel-based faith, we must first know the content of the gospel because you can't believe in something that you don't know. Second, faith believes that this content is actually true, that it's not cleverly devised myths as Peter mentions in Second Peter. And thirdly, faith responds in a personal way by trusting in Jesus who is the object of the gospel, the the personal, relational dimension. Now that's not just a philosophical uh, dissection or explanation of faith, that's the way that we see faith presented in the scriptures. And let's see how that's played out then in what Peter says uh, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. So he First of all, the bulk of his sermon is dealing with the content, with the facts, the fact that David prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, the fact that David died and was buried and remained buried and so he himself could not be the one of whom he spoke, the fact of Jesus' death 
and resurrection and the fact of Jesus' giving of the Holy Spirit and the facts of what these people had actually witnessed with their own eyes. Verse 33, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he's presenting them with facts, facts of what the scripture says and facts of what they're seeing happen before their eyes. This isn't just a set of ideas that Peter's presenting to them for their consideration. That's how most religions work. They give us a set of concepts or principles or instructions and they expect followers to obey them based on logic or emotional appeal or as if those ideas were somehow self-evident. Christian faith isn't based on abstract ideas but on ideas that have come out of the concrete action of God in this world, in history, in time and space. Faith is often spoken of by sceptics as something that you believe when you don't have any evidence or even something that you believe even if the evidence seems to contradict it. But by contrast, Christians can point to very real evidence for their faith. Not a logical argument, but the actions of God who from day one has been interacting with this world and creation and humanity. It starts by his action of creating the physical world and designing it the way it is, displaying his order and beauty and glory in such a way that no one has an excuse for saying there is not a God because when the sun rises every morning, that's not just because of the laws of physics that God set in motion. The sun rises because God is actively ensuring that the sun rises. Everything that happens is because of God's ongoing interaction with his creation. God created humanity at a particular time, in a particular place and he gave them a mandate to be active in the world. He chose Abraham in a particular time and place and he made promises that what he would do for Abraham would affect and shape the course of human history. He saved Israel in a particular time, in a particular place and he made himself known to them through his mighty acts. He appointed David as king of Israel at a particular time in a particular place. I'm getting my pages confused. He set David up to rule from a particular location, the city of Jerusalem. And then we're told when the time had fully come, he sent his son who stepped into human history. As we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He died in a specific place, in a specific time, under the supervision of a specific historical 
Roman emperor and governor. See, our faith is grounded in the facts of historical events. And then it's out of these historical events in which God has been working that the the ideas, the concepts of our faith flow. We know that God is holy and righteous because he has shown himself to be such in all that he's done through history. We know that he's good and loving because he has displayed this in his concrete actions and in the actions of Jesus. So faith begins with seeing the drama of redemption history, God at work, and what we've heard from reliable and faithful witnesses. See what Peter says in one of his letters. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Faith begins with the drama of God at work, uh, but it also then flows into the doctrines that come out of that drama. Secondly, in verse 36, Peter's sermon here, he presses home to them, not just the facts, but what the facts actually mean. He says, know for certain or beyond a doubt that all of these historical events and facts work together to testify that this Jesus whom they crucified is Lord and Christ. Now, Jesus' title and position as Lord and Christ isn't something you can necessarily prove in and of itself. It's something that we receive by faith when we are willing to say that those historical events are actually true and that they're not mere historical trivia. They actually carry spiritual significance. They're not random or cause and effect. They're actually planned and carried out by God for our sake. So this is the ascent component of faith that says not only these things are true, but also says if these things are true, then they have implications for me that I cannot ignore. I've mentioned before uh, the words of that, the well-known uh, professor of psychology, Jordan Peterson. Uh, he says of himself, I act as if God exists and I'm terrified that he might. He describes the Bible's story as a too terrifying a reality to fully believe. He finds it terrifying because he knows that if what it says about Jesus is true, it has huge implications that he cannot ignore. He says, I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. He should come along to church and you'll see what happens to a person when they fully believe it. You can have enough knowledge about the content of the Bible and the Gospel to win hands down at a Bible trivia quiz night, but as long as you simply see it as a collection of interesting and irrelevant trivia in the same category as saying the sky is blue or Captain Cook landed in Botany Bay on April the 29th, 1770, 
it'll have little impact on how you think or how you live your life. However, we know, don't we, that the historical event of Captain Cook landing in Botany Bay isn't just an idea. It really happened. And we know that the fact it happened has huge implications for us today, not the least the fact that we're here in this place we now call Australia. We also know it has implications for how we think about what it means for the relationships of all the peoples who are living on this piece of land today. Thirdly, the reality that the gospel events are true and the significance of them are true demands a response and the response that God says is appropriate to that is trust. And we've seen some examples of that, haven't we? The Gerasene herdsmen, though, didn't respond with trust. They responded with fear. They told Jesus to leave. We know that the Jewish leaders responded with anger and they conspired to put him to death. Both of those responses were based on knowing the facts, the content and realising the implications of those facts being true but neither added up to true faith. The one thing that combines knowledge and assent and makes them true faith is trust, personal trust. So verses 37 to 38, the people, they're terrified at what they've heard because they've realised the implications of what Peter has said. Jesus' resurrection means they're facing God's just judgement for crucifying him. So what shall we do? They've realised the truth and the implications. And then Peter's answer, to paraphrase, is, well, don't be afraid, because the same Jesus who's qualified to condemn you is offering forgiveness. So repent and be baptised. Now, Peter doesn't uh, use the actual word believe or trust, but this call to be baptised means the same thing. So this crowd were all Jews. They knew what baptism meant. Many of them had probably gone and been baptised by John the Baptist, the baptism for repentance. The water symbolised washing. And so being baptised is is confessing not just with your mouth but with your whole body, I'm a sinner who needs to be washed clean of my sin. It's an act of submitting yourself to God, of receiving all that he offers in Jesus to restore you, to make you a new person. It's saying, I no longer trust in myself and my righteousness but in Jesus and all that he's done for me. Knowledge, assent and trust. And all three are focused on the person of Jesus. Let's think for a moment of what happens if we lose any of those three things. If we remove knowledge, then what we end up with is something that's very 
superficial, based on whims or on emotions or immediate experience. Now we know that faith must be something that even a small child can express. A six-year-old and a 96-year-old can both have faith. So knowledge isn't about having an encyclopedic understanding of the Bible. It's not about being able to articulate in every detail the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. But even a small child's faith requires them to know that Jesus died for them. And then as that child grows and learns, so too will their understanding of the truth and all that entails deepen. As Christians we are commanded to grow in knowledge as an essential component of our maturity in Christ. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. I've heard many people claim that they believe in Jesus, yet they know very little about him. How can we say we believe in Jesus but we're not interested in learning as much as we can about him? I've also heard people many times being called to make a decision to follow Jesus when very little has actually been communicated about the Jesus they're being called to follow. If you added up all of the numbers that are reported of people who have invited Jesus into their lives, if those numbers were true, then all of the churches should be full and overflowing every Sunday if you added up the numbers. But sadly, many of those are cases of people responding just emotionally to a Jesus about whom they have very little or no knowledge. So we need knowledge. If we remove assent, the conviction that this is actually true and it has implications, then we end up with what's been labelled progressive Christianity. Progressive Christians will say that they have a faith or trust in Jesus but without having to believe that what the Bible says is actually factually true. It's a view that takes the historical content of the Bible and says it's just metaphorical or mythical with the only value being that they communicate some kinds of principles or values. If I take that approach then I'll be able to interpret the Bible in any way that suits me or discard parts of the Bible completely because they're no longer relevant to the modern world. So what I'll end up doing is I might have put my faith in a Jesus of some kind but it will be a Jesus that I've crafted to suit me instead of the crucified risen Lord who commands my obedience and my trust. And then if we were to remove trust, we'd end up with just another philosophy, just good ideas and principles that we will try to fit within our existing systems. Faith for us would then just be following abstract ideas instead of a real living relationship with the Father through the Son in the power and the joy of the Holy Spirit.
Christianity will become, without trust, just the best maybe of all of the options that we face about the philosophy of life, but never something worth laying our lives down for or passing on to the next generation. I think that's where we're at today uh, in Australia, in much of the West. It's been, there's been a knowledge and there's been an assent, but there needs to be the personal trust if we're to see the faith being passed on to the next generation because if all we pass on is knowledge and facts, then they will see no reason why they need to trust in the risen Jesus. We'll end up being those that Paul described in 2 Timothy 3.5 as those who have the appearance of godliness but we deny its power. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realise this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? See what the, the test is? It's actually not uh, how much knowledge do you have or even how strong is your conviction about the facts in the Bible but do you know that Jesus Christ is in you? That's a personal thing. Christ in you a relationship, one of trust. This is something we must all do. We must all test ourselves. We can't assume that because we've been going to church all our lives that we have true faith. Or even if at some point in time we professed faith, maybe said a sinner's prayer. In my time in student ministry, the most common testimony that I would hear from final year students, to sum up, was I grew up in a Christian family and when I started uni I assumed I was a Christian. Now looking back, I know back then I had no idea of what it means to be a Christian but I also know now that Jesus died for me and I am a Christian today. That testimony was because they, they'd been forced in a way because they'd chosen to join the Christian, they'd not been chosen, they had chosen to join the Christian group where they read and studied the Bible with their fellow students to examine what they actually knew of Jesus and his word, whether they actually believed it to be true and trustworthy and whether they were actually trusting themselves in the crucified, risen Jesus as their only saviour and their only hope. So, we must examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Do you just have knowledge about the Christian faith without the conviction that its claims are true? Or do you claim to follow Jesus but in reality you know very little about what he said and what he did? Or do you know deep down that the things you've heard are true but you've never been willing to entrust yourself to the one who died and rose for you? If you are someone 
who has the full assurance of faith, who wakes up every morning and says, yes, I am in the faith. I believe that Jesus died for me today. Then you also know the implications of this. We can't sit in our comfort zone and keep this faith to ourselves. True faith will lead us out of ourselves. It will motivate us to live a life that honours Christ and that desires to make him known. You are a believer today because someone else didn't keep their faith private. They stepped out of their comfort zone and they proclaimed Jesus to you and so you believe. So the question for us is how will we be involved then in bringing the good news of Jesus to the next generation?